Well, good morning. Welcome to uh, this morning's Sunday School class on apologetics and evangelism. My name is Jared. Uh, many of you know me. Um, let's just pray before we begin. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this privilege it is to come to our church as we gather together as the Church of Christ. We praise you, Lord, that you are a God who reveals himself as a God who is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. And we think of the cross, even this morning, the cross of Christ that is our banner as we know the forgiveness of our sins, the hope that we have in this life and the next. And we thank you, Lord, for even this hope that we can share with a hopeless world. So even as we consider um, the the event of evangelism and the <clears throat> the logic of apologetics, we pray, Lord, that you would equip us, you would bless us and strengthen us, that you would receive glory, that you would receive praise and honor even from the lost who turn to Christ and believe. So help us, Lord, that you might receive glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one day last year, I was speaking with a friend of mine, and I was sharing the gospel. So he's listening respectfully and attentively. He's, you know, nodding along a little bit. He's showing he knows what I'm saying. He's understanding what I'm, what I'm saying to him. Um, and then I finish. And there's been this pause. Now it's his turn to speak. And so his response to me is then, hmm, well, as a Hindu, I think that religion and faith are wonderful things, and, and we all have a path that we're on, and that we're all, we're all going in the same direction, whatever you believe. And I was sort of disheartened because I had just shared the gospel, the, the exclusivity of Christ and the good news of the gospel to him, and then that was his response. And so then I responded to him and said, so you believe that there are many paths to God, and they all sort of wind up this mountain, and at the very end, you, you meet with God in some way. And he smiles and says, that's exactly what I think, many paths. So pause right there. This is evangelism. This is apologetics. What do you say next? You could. You could, you could say you're wrong. You could, Zinger, what was that? Where did you get that from? So, essentially, he's just following his own beliefs of Hinduism. It's a, it's a, there's tolerance, open-mindedness, you know, a respect for one another. We're always learning from each other. And he's essentially saying, well, can't Jesus be true for you, but not for me? I have my own truth. And in a city like ours, Calgary, maybe even Toronto, um, this is going to be very significant for us. Of course, there's all sorts of different reasons why people would reject the gospel. The Bible says that, the, that sinful humanity suppresses the truth and unrighteousness, so that's going to take different forms. But with how many different religions we have represented, cultures, religions in this city, well, we're going to see this type of pluralism often. And the question that we have to understand is, is truth flexible? Is that actually true that you can have your own truth and you can have your own truth? And um, another person, when I was at work, I, I just made an offhanded comment about, you know, um, God's goodness. I think I was just speaking of God, and he said, well, I'm glad that's your truth. Like, like that's literally what he said, so I'm not making this up. This is what people will say. 
So is truth flexible and open to perspective, or is truth absolute and unchanging? If you have your Bible, turn with me to John 18. John 18, verse 36. Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king? Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? So even as we discuss this this morning, this is a very old question, a very old way of suppressing the truth, isn't it? With a show of hands, and maybe if you have a handout in front of you, you'll see it as well, but maybe you've been driving out on the road and then you see a bumper sticker on someone's car and it's, it spells out, Coexist. But it's sort of all garbled. And they're all symbols. Each letter of that word coexist is a different symbol. If you have your handout, you'll even see it there. It spells coexist with the crescent moon of Islam, the peace sign, a gender equality symbol, the star of David, some pagan symbol, the yin and yang symbol for Taoism, and finally, a cross for Christianity. So what's the message on that bumper sticker? What are they preaching? Everyone's preaching something. On that bumper sticker, this car is now saying, everyone's right. Everything is true. If you are a Christian, that's true. If you're a Jew, that's true. If you are a Muslim, that's true. Everything is true. And as the sticker says, we should just coexist. Let's not critique each other. Let's not, you know make arguments and get uncomfortable. Let's just coexist in harmony. So if you were to tell someone that you believe in Jesus and that they should too, well, they'll just tell you, can't Jesus be true for you, but not for me? And that's how they sidestep it. That's, that's not my truth. And it's important to recognize what they mean when they say that. It's called relativism. Relativism. Relativists believe two things, and it's dripping in irony. We'll get there. We'll get there, but we'll just we'll start with what they would hold to. That number one, there is no such thing as absolute truth. That is true for everyone everywhere. No such thing as absolute truth. And two, your beliefs and morality exist in relation to your perspective. Where did you grow up? Where do you live? Where are you from? How old are you? What are your experiences? It's all relative. It's all groovy. Whatever you want to believe, that's based on who you are and where you're from. So it doesn't matter if you're a Muslim or a Buddhist or an atheist or Christian. That's just how you view the world. That's your belief. It's autonomy, really, under a guise of open-mindedness. But to be consistent, a relativist should say, Nothing is objectively true, including what I just said. Catch that. 
catch the logic of relativism. Relativism states that there is no absolute truth, but they themselves have just declared an absolute truth to communicate that. There is no absolute truth, he said definitively. Do you get it? Do you see it? Relativism is logically self-refuting. If you say no belief is true for everyone, then you're actually making a universal claim for everyone. Hmm. So if you talk to a person like this, and, and that was my friend, my Hindu friend, Yakamaran, um, talking with him, and maybe people that you've talked to, you'll notice that they'll apply that principle to everyone except themselves. Well, you don't know if that's true, but take it from me. They'll apply it to everyone. Or um, she will make an absolute statement and absolutely no more. Notice, though, when they're wondering what sort of clothing to put on when they leave the house, they don't challenge the thermometer outside their window. Catch that. Maybe they'll claim that knowledge is unattainable. Knowledge is unattainable, but how do you know that knowledge is unattainable? How do you know that? So to put it bluntly, and if, if you're paying attention, you can see then that relativists are selective. Usually they don't question truths unless it relates to their morality or their beliefs. Where's the pinch point? Then, well, 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 well. So um, just for a little bit of back and forth, we're going to talk about objective truth versus subjective truth. So I need a volunteer who can holler out, what's the difference between objective truth and subjective truth? Maybe give an example if you can. We covered this in the youth group last summer, so I might have to pick on some of you as a warning. But anyone here, what's the difference between objective truth and subjective truth? Maybe give an example. Do you have an example? Hmm. Almost is objective truth, but um, <laughs> one way you could think of it is that's very good. Um, objective truth is um, based on facts. Facts and um, what did I have? So facts that they accurately explain reality. So snow is white. It just is white. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, that, very good, Alan. Yeah, that's, that's, that's really helpful. So, um, so, the emphasis is on the object. Edmonton is three hours north of Calgary depending on how you drive. Edmonton is the best city in the world. Well, that's actually now emphasizing my own opinion. That my, as a subject, my, my view of Edmonton. That's not my view of Edmonton. Don't worry. Snow is white. Snow is the worst. You're seeing objective truth versus subjective truth, your own opinion. So thinking about objective truth, Something can be objective 
objectively true even if you don't know it. We don't know all the sea creatures at the bottom of the ocean. We don't, we don't know all that's there, but they are there, and it's objectively true that they exist even if you don't know it. Something can be objectively true even if you don't like it. Snow is cold, and looking at the calendar, snow is coming. Even if you don't like it, it's true. Something can be objectively true even if only God knows it. So the relativist will insist that, that there is no absolute truth, but truth is only based on your perspective. And there's a very famous story, and again, if you have your handout, there's a picture there. Maybe you've heard this story before. An elephant walks into a village. Everyone's blind, though, so they hear this lumbering creature coming in, and so they're all blind, and they're groping around trying to figure out what this creature is. And then they disperse, and there's a whole bunch of them going around the elephant and grabbing onto different parts. And so then they come to conclusions based on what they feel on the elephant. One blind man, he touches the elephant's leg, and he thinks it's a tree. Okay, one, one blind man is tugging on the tail, thinks it's a snake. Another blind man is sort of waving and feeling the ear of the elephant and thinking, oh, this must be a carpet. Hmm. Everyone has their own perspective based on their experience. Everyone has their own grasp of God, of reality, of divine reality. Everyone has their own vantage point, and they're all right because they all just see from different angles. It's all relative. That's how it goes. Of course, I, I share that story with my friend, the Hindu, and he, he uh, starts nodding. He loves it. That's exactly it. That's exactly what religion and faith is. But because they were blind, they couldn't see the whole elephant, and their perspective was only a part of the greater whole. So in this way, all religions have a part of God, but no one can claim that they have the full understanding of God. So for this reason, we should all coexist. We shouldn't argue. We shouldn't be petty about religion. You have your truth. I have my truth. We're all just blindly groping along anyways. But there are several problems with this story. Number one, the narrator's false sense of humility. Why? Think about it. Think about it. Why is it that all the major religions of the world are described as being blind? That's, that's rude. That's quite insensitive. Think of it. It might sound respect, respectful to say that we all have equal vantage points and share an equal truths, but the narrator is actually saying you don't know what you're dealing with. You don't know the religion that you are actually claiming to follow. You don't actually have a good hold of that. You're blind. So it's funny that the relativist who would say coexist is actually in an, in an attempt to make peace with each other is actually being disrespectful of various religions. Um, and of course, it's the all-knowing narrator who can stand over here and say, but I know it's just an elephant. You all are, are blind. So uh, that's just something to think. Number two, different religions contradict one another. 
we actually view God and life differently. So it's not like it's just all parts of the same whole. There are major differences. Buddhists don't believe in a personal God. But Christians and Jews, Muslims, they do. In contrast to other religions, Hinduism doesn't have a founder or an appointed scripture, but more described as a way of life. So they're different. What's the biggest difference between all the religions is who is Jesus? That's where you zing to when you're talking with a, a pluralist. Who is Jesus? Who is he? What has he done? And what is the significance of that? At the center of our faith, of Christianity, is the claim that Jesus Christ is the incarnate Son of God, God who became flesh and dwelt among us. We have beheld his glory. He lived a perfect life, taught his disciples to follow him, died on the cross, and physically rose three days later. The Jews think that Jesus died and stayed dead. Muslims believe Jesus only appeared to die, but then was taken up to heaven. Christians know that Jesus is alive now in heaven and will return one day. We actually, and we don't put everything on this, but we do have good historical evidence. If you go to the British Museum or if you look in good books, uh, archaeological findings, there is good uh, reason to believe in the historicity of Jesus. It's just there. But just to think, if you had a video camera, if you had an iPhone sitting in, in front of the tomb where Jesus was laid, and it was recording video on that third day. Did Jesus come out of the tomb, or did he not? Objectively, not just what do you think about Jesus? Do you like Jesus? Do you like Christianity? Do you think Christians are hypocrites? Whatever. Move that to the side. Did Jesus rise from the dead? What would that video camera footage show? What you can't say is that Christians, Muslims, and Jews are all correct. You just can't. Either Jesus is the risen, resurrected king of the universe, or he isn't. It's one or the other. Number three, what if this elephant comes into the village? What if he speaks? What if he says, I'm an elephant. Oh, I think, I think it's a tree. I think it's a... I'm an elephant. I'm an elephant. What if he speaks? In the story, the blind villagers are left to their own musings to understand what the creature is, but God is not silent. God has not left himself without witness. Acts 14, 17. But God has made himself known. Isn't that awesome? We'll talk about that in a minute. Ultimately, in Christ, but also through creation and the written word, God reveals himself. I'm an elephant. You don't need to grope along and try to figure out what religion and what, what God do we need to conjure up from our own imagination because that's what it is. It's demonic. God makes himself known in four ways. The created world. Think of it. If you've ever, and I know you have, been outside and you've felt that warm breeze go past you, or you've seen the sunset, or you've just seen a blue sky and a green tree and green grass, or you've ever just tasted a pear, you know God is real. 
You just know. It's, it's God showing himself through the created world. Romans 1 verse 20, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and the divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. Or we know Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. So you're in the Rocky Mountains and you're just seeing this beautiful Alberta blue sky and the mountains and the, the smells, the sights, everything. Oh, that's God. God made that and he's revealed himself to you. The fact that you've experienced that, even if you don't have eyes to see, if you're blind, you can feel God's created order around you. You can smell, you can hear, and you are not, you're without excuse now. You know that God exists. He has revealed himself to you. Number two, God continues to, re to reveal. He opens himself. He, he shows himself in the written word, in the scriptures. God's historic faithfulness to his people, his law, the life, death, resurrection, ascension, and promised return of Christ is written for us very accurately as his revelation. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is God-breathed. He gives it to us and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. 2 Peter 1, 20-21, understand that no prophecy of scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation, for prophecy never had its ori origin in the will of man, like all other religions. But men spoke from God. God, as he inspires the writing of the scriptures, as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So God reveals himself in the created world, in the written word, and in the word made flesh. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He is the word become flesh, and we have beheld his glory. Hebrews 1, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. And think about the transfiguration, the revelation of that moment where something was peeled back just for a moment where, where Christ in his humility, in his incarnate state, rejected by men, left, right, and center, and yet the, the curtain is peeled back just for a second to see his glory, the glory of the transfiguration, and a cloud overshadows him, and a voice comes out of the cloud that says, this is my beloved son, listen to him. God reveals, he reveals through his son, the word made flesh. And number four, God reveals in the heart. Not only has he made all things on display, not only has he made all things be written down from um, the, the history of his people and the, the scriptures that he inspired, not only did he send his own son into the world, but he actually imparts something into your heart. He actually presses the truth into your heart to believe. We would call that irresistible grace. He causes us to be born again. He causes us to believe. Matthew 16, Jesus asks Peter, 
Who do you say that I am? Well, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus then responds, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by who? My Father in heaven has revealed it into his heart that he would know. Romans 8.16, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. You can know that you're a believer. The Spirit bears witness with our spirit. Now we can waver. We have our bouts of uh, struggles with assurance. But His Spirit causes us to know. We can know that we are children of God. So not only does God reveal himself in external means, but he actually internalizes it into our hearts. And isn't that our experience? We know what it, what it was for God to cause us to believe and to see like the scales fall from our eyes and we finally see something was imparted to us. So if you think broadly, um, the elephant speaks, you know, God reveals himself. We can think in two more broad stroke categories. We would call it general revelation and special revelation. The general revelation is just what you see outside when you um, see creation. And I, that, I've, I've actually used that as an evangelistic tool. It's not the gospel, no. But in having a conversation, I will say, look, look at this. Where did that come from? Bunch of dust particles colliding in space. This is so beautiful. This must have been made by a God, a powerful, creative God. Isn't he incredible that he could make this? And whatever they respond with that, at least you are commending the Lord to them. This is that general revelation that everyone sees or experiences. And then special revelation is something a little bit more particular. Not just what all humanity is aware of, that God exists, that his divine attributes and eternal power are on display, but that something particular is being revealed, like the Scriptures. Not all people have access to the Bible. And yet, if you do, you read of God's character, God's power, God's interactions with His people over history. And more specifically, the Bible will then tell you about Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This special revelation, which includes God even revealing Himself in the heart, causing you to go beyond words on a page and thoughts in your head, but to have love for Christ, to cherish Him. So, um, general revelation, special revelation. And the one thing with hmm, relativism is it has this, it has this baseline of we're not going to be oppressive with our ideology, which is a big thing these days. If you tell someone that they should do something different, well, that's a power play. You, you're, you're actually taking your, your privileged position of X, Y, Z, and you're telling me I need to do what you're doing. It's a power play, they say. So evangelism is now this, um, it's a flex you know, a flex of ideology. And um, what we want to do is, and you can sort of sense where a person's at when they're talking about it, 
but you're just wanting to dismantle some of these things and even, even just talk about some of these inconsistencies of relativism to, to discuss how ultimately truth is absolute. You have to recognize it. How, what time is it? You know, ask a relativist what time it is. How long to lunch? And then they'll tell you. And then as you dismantle that logic and then you, you then say, well, actually truth is absolute if you recognize that. And Jesus says that he is the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through him. So you're dismantling that logic. And that's what apologetics is. It's not a flex. And it can become that, especially for, for some of us. It can become a, um, an intellectual one-upmanship to sort of... Uh, uh, uh zig and zag, and you feel so clever. And then the other person thinks you're just a jerk because <laughs> you don't actually care about them. So, but apologetics at its core is making an apology and uh, a defense for the gospel and, and bringing the truth and the good news of the gospel to that person. So, okay, rewind all the way back to the beginning of, of today's talk. How would you respond to my Hindu friend when he says, well, we're all on many paths. We're all going the same direction. You have your path, I have my path. You have your truth, I have my truth. Well, we now know that he is a relativist. Call him a pluralist, relativist, basically the same thing. Um, you know, we should all just coexist. What would you say to him? I'll tell you what I said. <clears throat> he says... We're all on different paths. We're all going the same direction. And I said, you're right. I sort of wasn't expecting that from a Christian because we're usually quite exclusive. And so he was a little taken aback. You're right. We are all on many paths and all those paths lead to God. You can have the Islamic Muslim path. You can have the, the Hindu, the Buddhist, Jehovah's Witness, Catholic Church, you can, you, you can be agnostic, atheistic, you can be a Christian, they all end up at God. But when that path ends at the end of your life and you meet God, will you meet him as father or judge? Jesus says, I am the way, I am the path. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through the narrow road of the Christian faith, trusting in Christ. That Jesus cuts through the ambiguity, all those coexist symbols, all these different religions. Oh, how do we even know? Jesus cuts through and says, follow me and you will receive eternal life. You will be forgiven, truly. You don't even have to try to wrap yourself up with good works and good virtues and, and try to be this tolerant person and never getting in front of anyone's way. And Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come to me, Jesus, who took the path of perfect obedience all through his life, unlike us. Jesus, who took the path of suffering and even went to the cross so that our sins would be paid for and that his perfect righteousness would then be credited to us freely by faith, not by works, but by grace alone. 
And my friend says, huh, that was it. We were at work, so we had to go back to work. And oh, man, you got to be sensitive in the workplace. But just to think, yes, that is, a, that is a true statement that all paths lead to God, because they do. All of us will arrive before the judgment throne one day. And at the same time, no, it's not true. That is not true. It's not, not in the way that they think that, well, we can all just coexist in harmony. Um, so depending on the conversation that you're having with a person, you might actually just think, no, that's what Jesus says he's the way. There aren't many paths. There's one path. Or sometimes you can actually say, well, you're right, and, and work with them a little bit, have a bit of synergy, a little bit of, uh, a little bit of um, momentum in your conversation. But ultimately, we're getting to the cross. And as you're thinking about the differences between the different religions, which there are, you get to Christ. That's the most um, crucial part. Uh, we always get to Christ. We always get to the cross. So in the time that we have left, there are some questions on your handout. And I'd love for you to just, right now, look around and find three or four people who are sitting closest to you. Yeah, I want you to make eye contact with them. Because you're actually going to go and talk to them. <laughs> Even this is practice for evangelism, hey? If we can't talk to each other and make conversation, oh, we're, we're, we're out of luck. <laughs> but make contact, even give a bit of a wave to the people that you're going to go and sit with. I don't see any eye contact. Turn around, look at people. Yeah, say, oh, do you want to you buddy up? You want to buddy up? You could even start buddying up right now. We've got five questions, and some of them are, depending on where your headspace is at, you might spend 10 minutes talking about one. You might cover it in three sentences because you just get it. But if you're anything like me, you go to a Sunday school or you're watching something, you're learning something, it doesn't quite stick until you actually try to communicate it with someone else and see if you've understood it. And so five questions. While you're buddying up, let me pray, and then I'll leave you to it. Once you're done your conversation, you're free to go. Let me just pray. Father, we are undone that you would reveal yourself as a God who creates out of nothing you would create this beautiful world we live in. Even as it groans now under sin, we see the beauty and order of your creation and we marvel at your character and at your power. We marvel that you would reveal yourself in this way, causing us to see. Thank you, Lord, that you've stopped us from suppressing the truth any longer, but that we have seen and bowed our hearts before you, that you are the God of the Bible, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who saves sinners through Christ, your only Son. Christ, who would go and embody all of the law and take upon himself all of our sins on the cross, that through his life, death, and resurrection, we can know the forgiveness of our sins, can know the love of God, even as you cause us to see him for who he is. Thank you for how you revealed yourself generally and even in special ways to us. We pray that you would help us even in our remaining time as we discuss these things, that you would help us to be equipped and tuned to the truth of the gospel, the truth of the Bible, the, even the nature of absolute truth, that we would even this week perhaps have opportunities to speak 
the explicit truth of the Bible, the explicit, explicit truth of the gospel, and that you would help us to make you be known in a world that desperately needs you. We pray with thanks for all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.